Six. And if you don't know me, my name is uh, Pete, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of this church. And I'll get the opportunity and privilege of exploring some of these with you over the next few weeks. So I want to show you the four celebrities, and I wonder if you can guess what is in common for all of these celebrities. What's in common for all of them? Any ideas just for the, those who are here? What do they have in common? Sorry? They're singers. Uh, yes, I guess. But I'm thinking of something else. If you can't guess, they all have single names. They're known by just one name, right? Madonna, Cher, Sting, Zendaya. Like, I've often wondered, how famous do you have to be to get away with just having one name, right? Like, you, you reach some level of fame, and it doesn't even matter what your surname is. I wonder if you got that famous, and you could just choose one name, what would you choose for yourself? I want a cool name like Zendaya. This whole idea that you can get away with one name, I think has actually shown us there's a big change in terms of what we think about who we are. Like, like, don't you agree? Like, traditionally, in Western cultures and Western societies, your surname is not just important, it actually tells someone about your family and what your family potentially did. So let me just give you some examples. Traditionally, Western names like Smith or, or, or Baker um, or even Knight or Priest, they actually told you, told others something about your family. And so your surname tied you, your identity, to your family. Of course, even more so with a lot of East Asian names, Chinese names, Korean names, Japanese, your surname actually goes first, doesn't it? Yeah? And traditionally, I know in Chinese society, even your given names can tell which generation of your family you belong to, right? Your name tied you to your identity and tied you to your family. And the reason why this is the case is because the, the, the answer to the question, who am I, culturally, traditionally, has been defined by who you belong to in your family. Now, of course, it's not so easy to answer that question nowadays, is it? And that's why we've got these kind of single-name celebrities. It's kind of cool to be a single-name celebrity because who am I is no longer I am my family. It's, it's something else, isn't it? You can actually name yourself, be your own person. You can ditch your surname. It doesn't really matter. matter. In fact, that is, is even more attractive or, or better way of being authentic. Now, I want to suggest this morning that the change hasn't necessarily made us more sure or more stable or more happy. That this change in the way we think about ourselves, in some ways, has actually made us more anxious and more unsure of who we are. And that search for identity is actually a search for meaning and for security. And maybe this is something that you've really wrestled with. You've asked the question beyond your name or your names of who you really are. Now, this series, as I said, is a journey through some of the big questions, the who, the what, the how, the why. In 20 minutes, I won't be able to um, answer all of these questions in a really long way, in a short talk that I'm going to be giving. So I want to make available this Q&A that we'll actually be doing at the end of each talk. So um, that link will come up a few times. Uh, it's just a Google form. It's anonymous. Send through your questions. And after I talk and we'll sing another song, I'll come back and answer some questions. 
But I do want us, even though I'm only giving a short talk, to point us towards an answer. It's not going to be all the answers, but at least point us towards an answer. And I want to suggest that Jesus may be worth a first look or another look. A third of the world believes that Jesus provides at least some important answers. So maybe for you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're an atheist or formerly a Christian or has had some religious upbringing, wherever you are, whoever you are, I want to suggest that Jesus may be worth considering. Okay, first though, let's have a think about you, me, identity. Because there are three options, really, to how people answer the question, who are you? And they are, I am my tribe, I am my achievements, or I am my heart. Let's have a think about that. Firstly, a lot of people would say, I am my tribe. Now, tribe can be most naturally your family, right? Immediate or extended. But it can also be another tribe that you've chosen to belong to, a social group, a peer group, uh, or even a, tr- a, a tribe, a groups formed by like hobbies or interests or a subculture. Now, of course, in many traditional cultures, especially for those of us from Asia or the Middle East or Africa, um, South America, it really very much is family, isn't it? Family. And we have large extended families. I was talking to a friend, um, their background is India. And uh, they were saying, you know, in India, 300 for a wedding, guests to a wedding, is counted as really, really small. When they have a wedding, it's like 2,000, okay? They celebrate for like a a whole week because like the whole village would come along and, you know, everyone, including your, you know, your Uber driver would come along, okay? Because it's big families. Now, some of you might know um, in in Chinese, um, you know, the words for relatives like cousin, aunt, and uncle, Right? They're actually separate words for which side of the family they come from. Yeah, it's not like cousin. Well, which cousin? Second cousin, first cousin, mom's side, dad's side? No, they're separate words in the Chinese language for that. Just shows you how important your place in the family is for your identity in these cultures. And if, if this is how you define yourself, there is like a great sense of stability, right? Blood is thicker than water, right? Stability when you are defined by your family. I know exactly who I am based on my family and those around me that I've grown up with. But of course, we also know that the downside of that is it can really erase your individuality. And most of us brought up in the West really, you know, we love our families, but we don't want to be defined by our families. And, and what if, you know, in these cultures, you choose not to marry and you don't have kids? Well, you really almost feel like you have no identity. Now, uh, there is a Facebook group that a lot of you know about, Subtle Asian Traits. You read story after story after story of, of heartbreak over people who feel like, I don't belong in my family, my family have expectations on me, and it's crushing my individuality. So, of course, a more modern version of I am my tribe is, well, let's not talk about family, because you, you can't choose your family, but I can certainly choose my friends. And so let me define myself by my friends, the people I choose to have around me. And so your tribe becomes your peer group, uh, your social group. Now, this is especially strong amongst um, what we call subcultures, right? Often people who feel on the fringe, um, you know, that, that these subcultures can offer something that my family and the mainstream friends or society can't offer me. And it'll help me give, help give me the sense of security of a tribe when I can't find it elsewhere. And so nowadays, whatever subculture you belong to, lifter, weebs, gamers, cosplayers, boos. Even church, you could say, is a subculture. You can find your tribe there and define yourself there. Problem, though, 
even with subcultures, even with other tribes other than family, is that they really will have the same problems as families. The pressure to conform in these groups is strong. In fact, I would suggest sometimes even stronger. And you are accepted as long as you conform. And of course, acceptance is wonderful. If you've ever been part of a group, really feel accepted. It's wonderful. But rejection in these groups can be even more heartbreaking, right? Because blood is thicker than water. Your family generally won't reject you quite as easily as a social group, a peer group, or a subcultural group. Subcultures can become really toxic and very controlling very easily, right? And in some sense, it's less stable and it's more conditional on how well you actually blend and perform within that subgroup. So I and my tribe, if this is the source of your identity, potentially you've got problems. Well, what about the next one? How about we not look outside of ourselves for validation? Let's look at what we've achieved right? What we have done, what we have accumulated. So if I show you this picture and I ask you the question, who is Rafael Nadal? You're going to now, especially after last Sunday, you're going to say, well, he is the greatest of all time, probably. Why? Why is he the greatest of all time, tennis player? Because of his 21 grand slams. He has now set the record. Who is Rafael Nadal? His achievements. But we do this as well. When you meet someone, right? Um, went to a wedding last night, wedding reception, met a few new people at my table. Hi, how are you? My name is Pete. Often the next question is, so what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? See, who you are is often defined by, or at least accompanied by, what do you do? So your education, uh, your job, your wealth, the car you drive, the house you live in, right? All of those things, your achievements define who you are. Now, you may be like, no, 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 I don't want to define myself by all that material stuff. But we just define ourselves sometimes by other achievements. So I don't really believe that, you know, wealth is the measure of a personal career, but I believe that how socially or environmentally aware you are is part of what defines you. How much you recycle, how much you champion diversity. You know, you can just find other ways of listing your achievements that define who you are, can't you? Now, this one is really ingrained, isn't it? Like, even with cultures that really value tribe and family, they're often cultures that also really value achievement. Like, if you're Asian, you'll know exactly what I mean. Now, I wonder if this is how you define yourself. Who you are is what you've achieved, what you've got, or what you stand for. The problem with this, of course, is you also end up being defined by others. It's not really just about you. I mean, think about it. How is high achievement measured? Like, who gets to say what is high achievement? It's always socially defined by others, by your family, by your society, by your subculture. They define what high achievement is and what you would actually put as a part of your identity. You see, when you're asked, what do you do? You know the problem is there when I think all of us at some point get a little bit embarrassed when we can't give a good answer that we feel like the other person who's asked me would respect. Do you, do you see what I mean? Right? Because the people that ask you might hold to different values of what is high achievement. And it might be a great answer in one context, so I have a great career. But in another group, you might actually feel a little bit embarrassed that that's how you define yourself. You see, it's not actually about us. It's actually about what other people think as well. And at the end of the day, because it's an achievement, it's thoroughly based on what? Merit, right? 
which means it's something really, really hard to gain, but really, really easy to lose. You can lose merit just like that. And so if you're going to base your identity on achievements, it's very unstable. Failure is even more brutal because when you fail, you stop being you. So what's the solution then? Well, a lot of people would go for the third one. I am my heart. So again, traditionally, you look towards others to validate yourself, whether it's your tribe or, as I said, even achievements is about looking for our validation outside of yourself. So maybe the solution is don't try and look to others to affirm you. Look inwards. Follow your heart. Be who you want to be. It's what Elsa realized from Frozen, right? No longer living to the expectations of others. She has to set the rules for herself. It's all about, the buzzword is, of course, authenticity. Yeah, you've heard that? Authenticity is about being the real you, the authentic you. Because inside of you and me are dreams and desires and hopes, and we need to embrace them and express them. In fact, society functions best when we are all free to be our authentic selves, all free to be who exactly we want to be. Now, I've got to admit, this is really attractive, isn't it? And it's pretty much in every song, every TV show, every movie, every social media post. But we need to think a little bit more carefully about this one as well, because there are some serious problems with it. You see, if we look inside our hearts and we look at our desires, what are we going to find? You know, we're not going to find one set of clear coherent desires, desires that all work together, all make sense, all go in the same direction. What we're going to find are, quite frankly, lots of conflicting desires, right? Um, Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, his whole thing really is exposing how individuals, we all have deep desires that are essentially and unstoppably selfish and in conflict. Your desire for power and love and comfort and control, they're all battle within, That's Freud. Now, even if you don't agree with Freud, because, you know, quite frankly, modern psychology doesn't really care about Freud, um, but it's at least worth asking, of all the desires that are within you, which desire is more you? How do you know? And what happens when they're in conflict? I'll give you an example. Um, If I, as a dad, I have a desire to be really successful in my career, but I also have a desire to make my family Um, like prioritize my family and my kids and my wife and my marriage. Now, imagine a situation where I cannot have both of these desires, career or family, and I have to choose, right? Which one is actually more authentic? Which which desire reflects the real me? How do you know? And, And what if following one set of desires or following my heart, what if it deeply hurts someone else? So, Another example, what if I decide that I would leave my wife and my young kids because my heart now tells me to love another woman? And that's being authentic. And because I need to be authentic, I need to follow that. Now, probably the majority of people here are thinking, well, that's wrong. You can't leave your marriage vows. On what basis do you say, if this is your view, I am my heart, on what basis is that wrong? Who gets to decide that following my heart to love another woman isn't more authentically me. Do you see what I mean? See, I want to suggest to you that in the end, 
when you look within and what's valid, it's still very much affected by what's outside of you. As much as you think it's about you, it's affected by outside of you. Let me give you a hypothetical. So imagine a samurai in feudal Japan in the 14th century. And this samurai has two desires. One is aggression. To exact revenge on someone who has insulted his honor, he will go and chop their head off. That's one, aggression. The other desire is same-sex attraction. He's attracted sexually to other men. Now, being a samurai in the 14th century, he will identify with the first feeling, aggression, take vengeance, and feel no shame or no regret, because that's the authentic him. But what will he do with the second one? Most likely, in feudal Japan, he will reject and suppress same-sex desire one. He will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that. Right? Agreed? Hypothetical, I know. But it's possible. Now, you compare that to a person living in Sydney, Australia today with those same two desires, aggression, same-sex attraction. Which one will they champion? Which one will they suppress? It's pretty obvious it's the opposite, isn't it? Right? We don't go chopping people's heads off. That's something we need to suppress. Now, what, what does all of this show? It shows that it's actually an illusion to think that your identity is simply an expression of your inward desires and feelings because no one identifies with all the strong feelings in their hearts. I, I think this hypothetical shows that we all have some kind of filter. There are always a set of beliefs or values to determine which desires we ought to value that is really validly authentic and which desires we probably should suppress or people's heads might go rolling. Do you see what I mean? Now, where do these values come from? That's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to make a value judgment on aggression or same-sex attraction, which one's better. Where do these values and filters come from? Do they come from inside of you? Of course they don't. They come from 14th century feudal Japan or 21st century modern Australia. They come from our community. They come from our society, outside of ourselves. And this is actually why all that talk of authenticity and following your heart is actually really great for businesses and advertisers. We've actually become so easily manipulated because we think it all comes from within, but actually it comes from outside. Advertisers know this really well because advertising is all about what? Manipulating desires. Right? Your social media has worked out the correct um, algorithms to create that. And so particularly for young people, social media now defines what's desirable. And so for, for so many young people, they're more anxious and feeling more inadequate. Because my desires have been manipulated to have to conform to look feel, think, and speak a certain way according to my Instagram or TikTok feed. And if I don't, I feel less. Or if I don't and I speak out, I'll probably get cancelled. Which actually means, ironically, to follow my heart falls back on following my tribe and following my achievements. Do you see? They all end up the same. See, I want to suggest today that there is a better way than defining yourself by tribe, achievements, or heart. And believe it or not, it's in meeting Jesus. But for a window into that, I want to first meet a guy called Zacchaeus, or we'll just call him Zach for short. Uh, we didn't read this earlier, but this is a really interesting encounter between Jesus 
and a man called Zacchaeus, written in one of the biographies of Jesus' life by a historian called Luke. Uh, Let me read it out. You can follow it on the uh, screens. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. When Jesus reached, oh, sorry, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's how he talks about himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I wish I had more time to really delve into this passage. Let's just um, observe a few things. Uh, First is, how would Zacchaeus, how would Zach answer the question, who are you? How would he answer it? Because according to his achievements, if he goes down that line, he's a success. All right? It says that he's a chief tax collector, and therefore not just wealthy, but very wealthy. But what did that cost him? Tax collectors in the ancient world, if you're a Jewish tax collector, you were seen as a national trader. You were the lowest of the lows in Jewish eyes because you had to deal with the enemy and you, in fact, collected taxes for the enemy. So if he went down the I am my tribe way of thinking, or according to his tribe, he would be a failure. So which one is it? Right? Is he a success according to his achievements? Is he a failure according to his tribe? Or if Zacchaeus is going to be defined by his heart, his desires, then I guess which one? Because he obviously had a desire for wealth, hence the the achievement, tax collector, but he also had a desire to belong or he wouldn't be there at that day. He chose the first so he couldn't have the second, but which is more authentically him? Well, I'd say neither because he wasn't satisfied, right? That's why that day he came searching. In fact, the story, the narrative, the way it's written highlights just how desperate he was in this search. It's almost comical, right? You've got this pretty short guy abandoning all social um, respect. He climbs a tree just to even see Jesus. It's like him saying, if only this Jesus who everyone's been talking about, if only he could just notice me. Here I am up on a tree just so he maybe he would notice me. Maybe he could tell me who I am. And maybe he could tell me what my worth is. One of the best books I read at the end of last year was a book by... Anna McGann called Metanoia. Tell you a bit about her. You may recognize her because she's an actor. She's an Australian actor. By her early 20s, Anna uh, had tasted much of what the world has to offer. Uh, Many, many sexual partners, both male and female. Recreational drugs. She was into new age spirituality. She's growing in her fame as, as a TV star, especially as a sexual icon. Now, if you wanted a poster child for the modern, I am my desires, or I get to define me, I follow my heart, she lived it. And in in that sense, she succeeded in so many ways. But she would tell you that at that time, she felt really empty. She was very broken, and she yearned and longed for more. And then something happened. Through a series of events, she picked up a Bible on her own, and she read. Let me, um, 
read to you her words. She said, I was so rejected and broken, and this person of Jesus just disarmed me because it was so personal. I expected to meet a Jesus that was on the side of Christians and of the people that I, at that time, didn't identify with. When I first read the Bible, there was a free Bible that I knew would be in the drawer of the hotel room I was staying in. I read it to convince myself that it wasn't true. But as soon as I started to read it, I was like, well, this is the story I know I believe. Because this person came out of the page and was on my side and was my friend. I felt this deep alliance from him and acceptance like everything that you are, the entire mess that you are, exactly as you are right now, I am with you. I don't care for religiosity. I don't care for hypocrites. I felt like I had an ally in Jesus when I didn't have anybody on my side. And her life was changed when she met Jesus. Just like the life of Zacchaeus when he met Jesus. You see what Jesus did for Zach? When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he cuts through this mess of achievement and rejection. Jesus sees Zacchaeus for the precious person that he is. Notice Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. He says Zacchaeus. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus dealt with many people. He loved all of them. He only gets to call a couple by name. Zacchaeus is one of them. He calls him by name. He invites himself over, which is a big deal, right? In that culture, in any culture, someone famous saying, I'm going to come to your house. That's the ultimate sign of acceptance. And that absolutely, you'll see, changed Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus is now freed. He doesn't have to define himself by his tribe that rejected him, his achievements that are hollow, and his conflicting heart. Notice his new identity. Jesus sort of gives it to him. Jesus says, look, you're a son of Abraham now, which in, in the language of that day is you belong to God. You're right on the inside, even though you've lived on the outside all along. As far as God's concerned, you're one of mine. You were lost, but you know, it's my job to come and find you, and you've now been found, and to save you. You see, how would Jesus answer the question, who are you? He would say, you. And he might be speaking to you right now. This is who you are. You are made. You are known, you are loved by, and you belong to your Creator. That's who you are. It's that psalm that Wendy read to us earlier. I hope you caught some of the beautiful poetry of the words. We can't read it all again, but some of the words, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You see what I'm saying? God knows us so intimately and so thoroughly and so deeply. There is no hiding from God. In fact, the writer of Psalm 139 says, where can I hide from you? I can't, nowhere. He even knows our hearts. The word is inmost being when we don't even understand our own selves, our own hearts. But He loves us still 
so intimately and so thoroughly and so deeply. You know the problem with all the three alternatives I talk about, tribe, achievement, heart, defining someone by that? The problem is it's, it's elitist. What I mean it's elitist, it's, it doesn't work if you have no family and no prospects. It doesn't work if you're, say, severely disabled or underprivileged and you can't realize any hopes or dreams. Do you see what I mean? Whether it's tribe or achievement or heart, you're not worth anything if you're the lowest of the lows. It doesn't work except for potentially first world people. But if God knows you and God loves you, then you're precious just as you are, just as He made you. And it includes unborn fetuses. It includes elderly people. It includes severely disabled people. Our worth and our identity are not defined by our usefulness or even our consciousness. That God can love you for you, not how others define you, not how your achievements define you, no matter if you have a tribe that you belong to or you don't. You don't have to look anywhere there for your identity. Also with God, you don't have to even look inside of you, your heart, for your identity either, which your heart, as I said, is uncertain, is confused and easily manipulated. Don't have to follow your feelings or your desires. Look to Him. You can be defined and be known by the one who does not change, the one who is from eternity, and you can be loved by Him unconditionally. One of the pastors uh, in America called Tim Keller, he wrote this. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known but not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. When Jesus welcomed Zach, everyone would have been in shock that day. I mean, how could someone like Jesus, rabbi, holy teacher, how could someone like Jesus accept and love someone like Zacchaeus? What about all the nasty things that Zacchaeus did? And that might be your question. You might be listening up to this point and goes, yes, this is really attractive. I can see where this might be a much better place to put my identity, but how... How can I be sure that God won't see me, know me, and actually reject me? I don't even like me sometimes. Well, the answer to both Zacchaeus and our situation is this. A little bit later in that biography of Jesus' life in Luke, Jesus goes and dies on the cross, deliberately goes there. See, Zacchaeus that day climbed a tree to find acceptance Well, Luke tells us Jesus will also climb a tree, a cross, in order to secure Zacchaeus' acceptance. You see, what Jesus dies on the cross is God saying, hey, you know what, I know you so deeply, and yet I love you enough to pay for all the dark and horrible things that I know you've done, that I know you will do. And I'll deal with that because I love you, and that's why I can always accept you just as you are. See, this is a security and an identity that nothing and no one can take away. We're going to get the band up. We're going to sing again. Uh, But just a reminder, there is that link 
to the questions. I'd love to be able to read some of them. Any question is open for you. It doesn't have to be related to what I said. Any question you have on God, spirituality, Bible, I'll do my best to answer it. Um, but we'll sing first, and then um, we'll come and have some Q&A. Awesome. Thanks.